Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's first meeting is Andre Bourbonnet, Managing Director at BlackRock and global head of its newly launched long-term private capital business, a multi-billion dollar permanent capital private equity fund. Andre brought 30 years of private market transaction and management experience to the role, most recently as CEO and Chief Investment Officer of PSP Investments, the $110 billion Montreal-based Canadian pension fund. 
He previously served as Senior Managing Director and Global Head of Private Investments at the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board, or CPPIB, where he was responsible for over $65 billion in private market assets, the largest program of its kind globally. Our conversation talks about the creation of BlackRock's innovative private equity fund, starting with a clean sheet of paper. We discuss the traditional private equity playbook, the changes in financial structure, business strategy, and return drivers that can occur with permanent capital, the structure of the fund, deal origination, a new ownership playbook, the re-underwriting process, sell decisions, portfolio construction, and managing a team whose careers will be shorter than the duration of the fund. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators. Before we get going, I have the distinct pleasure of offering you a rare opportunity to join the one percenters, actually the top half of the one percenters. You see, just about half a percent of regular show listeners have offered up their feedback with a review and rating on iTunes. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment and seize the opportunity to join the one percenters by hopping on iTunes, rating the show, and writing a brief review. It'll help other people find the show, and I thank you for it. Please enjoy my first meeting with Andre Bourbonnet of BlackRock. Andre, great to see you again. See you, Ted. Thanks for having me. Well, it's going to be a really fun story to tell, but why don't we start with how you got here in the first place and just maybe start at the beginning of your career and the evolution of it. Yeah, well, don't hold that against me. I was trained as a lawyer, and to be honest with you, I hated every minute of it, but I had a grand mentor in the firm, and including people that taught me that it was really important to understand what our clients were doing to help them from a legal point of view. And I became fascinated with businesses and how they made money and how they perform, and quickly switched first to consulting and then started a career in telecom. And when we sold our business in 2000, I was fortunate enough to be invited by a friend of mine who was the CFO of the business, the telecom business I was working on, to be part of the private equity group at CDPQ. And really, there I developed my love for investment. Then my career was mostly on the investor side in Canada for large pension plan and first at CPPIB, and then recently I was the president and CEO, CIO at PSP Investment, which is the pension plan manager for the federal employee pension plan. And did the work you do span investing in direct deals and external managers? Yeah, so it started at CDPQ in a fairly narrow field. I was responsible for starting their financial institution private equity business. And we were doing both direct deals and fund. And then at CPP, I was asked to develop the direct private equity group. But then was when my boss, Mark Wiseman, was asked to become the CEO. I moved up in the food chain and took responsibility for all of private investments, which included direct private equity, but also the fund business, including our secondaries business infrastructure, private debt, and natural resources. That last role when you were sort of running this group at PSP, what were you responsible for? 
I was responsible for everything. And to me, it was obviously I knew the private space really, really well. I was much less comfortable with the public market, but I had a terrific team there and learned what was absolutely key in the public market space. But I think one of the reasons the board selected me at the time it was my expertise in private because the private equity group needed an overall and we didn't have a private debt practice at PSP. And one of the things I implemented there was the private debt practice, which we started a couple of blocks from here in New York. So as you evolved from doing deals and looking at managers to running a private equity group broadly defined to running a pool, what lessons did you learn that shifted from being the on-the-ground investment guy to managing a team of investors? This evolution from being a deal person to becoming a manager happened to me. I didn't really plan it, but I think my experience in the deal-making space really helped me be a better manager. Then you become the head of the group. You get involved strategically in some transaction, and even less so as the CEO of a large pension plan. But when you do, I think that in the field experience really help you focus on the most important thing in the transaction. And then I was chairing the investment committee for those groups. And again, the experience that you get on a deal-by-deal basis is really important because when somebody has spent three, four, five hundred hours on a transaction, they're the expert, you're not. But you hope that your training, that your experience, that the fact that you've seen so many transactions is really going to help you focus on the right question to ask in order to help the deal teams develop their due diligence and their investment thesis. The Canadian model of much more than you see, say, in the States or even abroad, of blending internal management and external management. What did you see as the pluses and minuses of overseeing that model? It's hard to put vision and government in the same sentence, but I do think that the government in Canada got it right in terms of making sure that the large pool of capital were managed in a commercial and professional way. So they made sure that we had the right governance, governance that is really independent from them. And they made sure that people were compensated in a market way so that we could attract talent. What are the plus? I think that by internalizing a lot of the activities, you make sure that you reduce the friction costs of external managers. And then the real question for you is sort of a completion strategy is really to focus on things that you think you can develop the expertise internally and be really good at and let the niche sector in the ends of external managers. So I think the model is a proven one. I think it's a very good one. The various pension plans in Canada are in different situations. Some are still in net inflow of contribution and will be for the foreseeable future. Other are in deficit in the sense that they have more benefits to pay than the contribution that they receive. And therefore, that will also impact the strategy that some of those funds will take. And the latter will tend to disintermediate even more to capture the fees that they're paying so that they can grow their fund even faster. So you're sitting at the top of this plan that's doing extraordinarily well. What was the impetus for making a move? If you look at my career, I've always been a builder of teams and a builder of businesses. And on top of that, like I said, I didn't necessarily choose to become a manager. It sort of happened to me. And I think I did a relatively good job in both instances. But my passion was about investment. And 
And I've always felt that there was a gap in the strategy, solution, product offering, call it whatever you want, in terms of true long-term investors, and certainly a lack of evolution in the traditional private equity model, and that this lack of evolution had been to the detriment of the investor. So I'd been trying to build more long-term strategy within our pension plan, but those plans are long cash and short human capital. So it was difficult to get the origination capabilities that we needed and probably more importantly, the value creation and asset management capability that we needed to really make a long-term strategy fruitful and impactful for the business. So At the same time as I was sort of thinking into this, Larry and Mark Wiseman approached me with this idea of a true long-term private capital fund with permanent capital and one that had no conflict, that didn't have a legacy business to protect, and quite frankly was focused because it was starting from a blank piece of paper on how to have a more equitable distribution of the so-called profit between the sponsor, the team, and the investor. So that really attracted me that what we're doing here for the industry is really important by being innovative, by trying to challenge the current model, and by trying to bring a different option to the investors. So as we walk through this, I think it helps to start with this point you made about the traditional private equity model and that playbook. So how would you define what traditional private equity firms are doing today? A lot of private equity firms have a very short-term approach to value creation in companies. And it's a model that has worked really, really well for them. But if you look at the traditional DL, they buy either companies where there's a lot of inefficiency and try to solve for those inefficiency. They have a very aggressive plan within the first two years of ownership to transform those companies. They also use leverage to a point where not in an environment like this where money is almost free and things are going up, but everybody remember 2008 and we all remember how those capital structure put a lot of those companies in jeopardy, quite frankly. So to the extent that the model work in an environment where there's growth and you can affect those changes within the first few years of ownership and then prepare the the company for a sale in the next couple more years, you have a fairly short time frame to execute and the economic environment and the timing plays a significant role in the success or not success of a particular fund vintage. And they're very deal focused. What we're trying to do here is really to be more company focused and look at buying good companies and making them better and making them great. As my partner, Colm Lanigan, says, cost reduction is not really a strategy. So we are extremely focused on growth. And there are some of the firm out there that are also focused on growth. But we want to be focused on growth for longer term and really be in a position where we don't have to sell a company for external factor like realizing carry or having to raise another financial realization. We want to make the decision based 
on our initial investment thesis. We will re-underwrite it on a regular basis and make sure it still holds, that there's no disruption in the market, that there's still the right management team, that we're still the right owner for the company. But we really want to make sure that we make the decision of keeping or selling the company based on idiosyncratic reason of the company itself and not external factor. And I think that that's one of the great changes that we're bringing is really to make sure that the decision are made in the best interest of our investor to keep or sell a company and not for other reasons. So in that sale, have you seen over the course of your career, private equity firms shortening their horizon of ownership? I've seen it several times. And sometimes it was part of the thesis. But sometimes I've seen very, very good companies being sold way too early, again, because a fund was at a time where they needed to go fundraising again and they needed to show realization, or because they had had a good run and they wanted to crystallize carry. And one of evidence of that behavior is that you look at some companies and there's a statistic that says that since 2000, there's 500 companies that have been owned consecutively by three or more private equity fund, which means that those companies would continue to do really well in the private domain, have been owned now for 12, 15, 17 years under a private umbrella. But it's just that those transactions create so much cost friction that if we were able to own that company for 17 years straight, you would have a significant impact, certainly on the multiple of capital that you can generate and possibly on the IRR. So as you turn to this different model of approaching the private equity market, how do you start with creating a structure that's conducive to, as you said, longer term ownership of businesses? So we innovated in several ways. And I think the overarching principle of innovation in this is that we didn't try to design this product in isolation and write a PPM and send it to investor and say, hey, this is what you should invest in. The firm approach, some of their best clients, some of the clients who have the largest private equity practice and say, listen, we have this idea. Here's sort of a straw man. Help us in partnership to build something that you would invest in. And I think that that is really, really different in a world that is more used to divide and conquer. Having been a big LP in, uh, in several of the traditional private equity fund, I think I, I can recognize that this was a very novel approach. And then we looked at the things that those investors have told us. And one of the thing was the permanent nature of the capital. And again, being able to make decision of keeping or selling company, not based on having to raise a future fund, but really having a structure that allow us to make that decision based on the company itself. Then the fee structure, and the fee structure in private equity hasn't really evolved. Everybody talks about the two and 20. Now it's not two anymore. But initially, when you look at the management fee. The management fee was there to cover the operating costs of the management company. And as the fund grew 10, 20, 40 times, the fees charged were not reduced by the same factor. And that structure is really conducive for the manager to increase the size of the fund because the benefit of an increased fund goes to the manager and not to the investor. We had a very different approach. We went back to the roots of private equity where management fee was really designed to cover the operating costs. And now we have a fixed budget approach. 
And that has a significant impact because first, we ask our investor to approve the budget. But second, any increase in the size of the fund will inure to the relative benefit in terms of basis point to the investor because the cost is not going to grow at the same pace as the fund itself. So so we think that there's innovation also on that front. Then the compounding effect and the fact that we can recycle capital, that the cash flow from our investee company can be used to continue to grow them, to grow other companies in the portfolio, or ultimately to buy new companies without making any capital calls to the investor is really innovative. And finally, all this efficiency really allows us to underwrite higher conviction-based case because we've been able to reduce significantly with the cost efficiency this gross to net spread. So underwrite base case that are higher conviction with less risk, less volatility, and yet deliver the same kind of net return that other private equity firms deliver. Well, let's start breaking down the investment activity. So you have this structure, has longer duration capital, more flexibility in what you can do with the companies and an aligned fee structure. Where do you start looking for the types of companies that you can attract, particularly those that someone with a traditional private equity structure might be less advantaged structurally? So I will tell you where we're not looking first. We're not looking in big auction where people want to maximize the value of their business. And it's a totally legitimate activity. And there's a lot of those auction where several people will come in and bid. So that really is not of interest to us. So what we're looking are people that have a significant influence as to who their partner is going to be for the continued growth of the company. And where we found success so far are in companies that are founder-led, that have been owned by private equity, and private equity has done an amazing job in this first round at professionalizing the business, at helping them grow, have processes in place, determine their strategy. But now the private equity firm wants some liquidity. The founder doesn't want to get into a situation where they're going to be levered six plus time. They're going to have very aggressive either cost reduction or acquisition plan to make the so-called infamous 20% return that private equity tries to achieve. And more importantly, they don't want to get a partner that in five years will need some liquidity and where they will need to go again and find a replacement because it's a very disruptive activity for a company to change the partnership, the capital structure. So our capital is valued in those situations where the founder has a significant influence on who the partner is going to be and where he can say, I want to deal with these people because I think the right kind of partner. Other situation are family-owned companies that, again, are less sensitive to price, but very focused on who the partner for the next 15, 20 years is going to be and help them grow the business. And finally, corporate who need partner because some activities are important, but they're not necessarily core. They want to continue to grow them and keep an interest in them, but they want to deploy the capital somewhere else. And again, if you look at our pipeline, those are situations where we have a lot of interest. And was this hypothesis driven that there are certain types of owners that you think are going to be more likely to be interested in the kind of capital you're able to provide? Or did you just go out into the market and find that these are the people that are gravitating towards you? No, we knew that we would not be 
the right party to participate in auction. And we also knew as a working assumption that people needed to value more than just the money and they needed to value the type of capital that we were bringing, the experience of the team, the sponsorship of BlackRock. I have confidence that we were the right kind of partner for the next stage in the development of the company. That being said, I think that we've refined that thinking with real-life experience in the discussion that we're having right now in our pipeline. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. And as you go out, and I think of other people who have similar type of duration capital, right? You think of Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. You could think of places like your former employers that do this directly. How do you go out and find the businesses that might be attractive? There's several ways of doing this. First of all, I have a team where the principal have collectively more than 100 years of experience between Cole Lanigan and myself, we've managed a huge pool of capital and been big fund investors and therefore followed four, five, six thousand underlying companies in those funds. So we know the market pretty well and the situation I just described to you. So first, the team experience and the team relationship is important in origination. The other element is we've become a new client for the street. So we've got a parade of investment bankers that are coming here. But to their credit, the investment banking community is really starting to think of this long-term capital as a different asset class. Some are better than others at it and have like now dedicated team to, to finding opportunities in that space. So intermediaries is obviously one source of transaction. But I think the big differentiating factor is the BlackRock network. And all of my colleagues now understand what our business is. And they, in their day-to-day activity, they will think of LTPC as a potential acquire or potential solution for some of their businesses. We have our active equity business that can provide a number of leads. Our family office business, I think, is going to be tremendous. And we're building relationship. My partner, Doug Scottam, is is really building the relationship with that group. And finally, the senior management team of this organization has meeting with hundreds of CEO and high-ranking executive and in a sort of push-pull where they know what we're doing and they also hear things from these people can bring us ideas. So I think that the 
the BlackRock ecosystem is going to be a tremendous generator of ideas for us. Once you're sitting down with a company, you've done your due diligence, you're interested in trying to buy the company, no matter what, it's still a competitive market. What are the key points of what you try to drive home that's different about your proposition? So you're right. I think that true proprietary transactions are very rare. They exist, but they're very rare. I'd say that, first of all, it has to come from, like I said, the owner or the manager of the company that sees true value in long-term capital and want to remain involved for the foreseeable future in the growth of the company. But where I think we're making a difference is that you know, first of all, we don't need put call liquidity event negotiated in advance. We will have either control or shared control of the entities that we're buying and have mechanism where we don't need to sell and we need to determine with our partner when is the best time, if ever, to sell the company. So, so and that relieves a lot of the manager of the pressure of the short term performance. The other part is that we can bring a geographical footprint and relationship with governments, corporate regulator throughout the world that no other people can bring. And finally, the last thing I think is that if you look at the spectrum of value creation, the management team that we're supporting is key in our investment decision. We don't want to tell them how to run their business. We already know that we're buying good businesses. But here are the value creation aspect that we can bring to you. And I think that that's very attractive to a lot of managers. So you've locked up this deal and now you own the company. And there's a couple of levers you think about the balance sheet and the financial structure of the business and then operating the business. What's your game plan? We're financiers, so we have models and we have a base case, a five-year base case and a 10-year base case. But I think the most important thing, other than the regular value creation ideas that we bring in and the implementation of those, is really to re-underwrite our thesis on a regular basis to make sure that we continue to be the right owner, that we're providing the right input and the right value add to the company, that we still have the right management team, that there's no disruption in the market, that there is no external factor that would make us reconsider our original thesis. So I think that this re-underwrite, and if I can use an example, I mentioned to you earlier companies that are being sold from one private equity fund to another to another. There is some value on a punctual basis, on a timely basis, to relook at the company and make sure that that change of ownership brings that naturally. What we're saying is that we can do the same thing either with a different deal team, with different operating partners, with different consultant on a regular basis and achieve the same result without all the cost friction of selling the company three or four times. And how about on the balance sheet? The way we're thinking about leverage. So first of all, we our economic efficiency and our model allows us to put much less leverage than, than traditional PE puts on company, I would say that the way we're thinking about leverage is really as a function of growth of the company. And I always give the example of a company I, I know well, which is a Montreal-based company. It's a public company and they've been moderately levered, but at various points in their corporate life, they found really transformational acquisition. And then at that particular time, they levered up their balance sheet to execute on the transaction 
benefited from the economy of scale, delevered the company, and then at another time find another company that was also a transformation. So that's how we're thinking. We're not going to use leverage to max it out and dividend recap because that's really doesn't work in our model. We're going to use leverage in a moderate way, but we will be able to use it and increase the leverage on a timely basis, but really in an effort to continue to grow the company through transformational acquisitions. In this period of ownership, you mentioned two things that are tricky. So one is that you can recycle your capital. So it doesn't mean that you're going to buy something and own it forever. And the other is this sort of swapping of deal teams. And I'm wondering from the management team's perspective, on the one hand, you're not necessarily saying you're a permanent owner, but then every couple of years, you've got another team and that team might scrutinize you in a different way. How does that work? So on the recycling of capital, just to make sure the primary cash flow from one company will be dedicated to continue to grow that company. So we will only use the extra cash flow to either continue to grow other companies or to buy new ones. So the primary target of the cash flow will be the growth of the company producing them. I think that the manager view that positively because they want to be challenged. They want to make sure that they don't miss anything. And having the support of a machine like we can provide them. And it's not just the deal team. It's the entire ecosystem here that has information about macro, micro, the competition, that we can help them rethink their business model. Because like I said, they don't want to sell the company. They want to continue to grow it. And any input to that thesis is really, really important to them. So Right now, the discussion that we're having with sort of a handful of founders on how we intend to do it has been received very positively. And how do you think structurally about the types of businesses you will want to sell? There's going to be situation, and I've faced that situation in my prior life. So first of all, we're fiduciary to other people's money. So we want to make sure that we make the best decision in the interest of our investors. So there will be situation again, where we got in there with a long-term view, and then we realized that we won't be able to deliver the kind of returns that we've represented to our investor, and we need to think of strategic alternative, including a sale of the business. There will be other situations where, even if we're in for the long term, we will, in an unsolicited fashion, receive the offer from third party that we will need to consider. And in some cases, those offers will be so good and so hard to replicate in terms of long-term growth of the company that selling it at that time will be the right decision. And in other circumstances, we will be victim of our success. One company may become so big in the portfolio that for risk management and portfolio construction reason, we will want to downsize the way our ownership in the company and certainly a partial sale will be considered. Should we take a step back in just the private equity environment right now? The one thing we all hear is prices are really high. How do you invest in that landscape? So I've been thinking that prices are very high since probably 2011. And if I had stayed on the sideline, I would have missed greater opportunity. I think we are a very long-term fund. Our goal is not to try to time the market. Our goal is to invest the money. And we don't have a 
finite investment period, which is probably better than traditional private equity. And therefore, our working assumption is over the next four to six years, we'll deploy the capital, but we don't have to. And without trying to time the market, yeah, we'll be first very, very, very disciplined in this current environment. But second, we will also not deploy it very quickly and make sure that it's spread over a number of years to avoid the traditional vintage issues. Push back on that a little bit. I mean, there is a degree of market timing that you have no choice, right? If we're in a low double-digit EBITDA multiple environment, but 10 or 15 years ago, it was a high single digit. It's like a 50% difference in price. So you're either going to play or you're not. How do you decide on the margin, this price is good enough, or we should wait because sometime in the future, we think price is going to be significantly lower? Ted, you're right, except that not having the pressure to sell at a specific time is really helping us. And as long as we believe in our base case that there is secular growth in the company. And we'll know that being an owner of of an asset for a very long time, there will be down period. But as long as you believe that there is secular growth in the asset that you're buying, I don't think it's much of an issue for us. Certainly less than if you have to sell within five to seven years. As this rolls on, so right now you're in an investment period. And then we roll on five years, 10 years, 15 years with a vehicle like this. How do you think about the construction of the portfolio over time in terms of the number of companies that you'll want to have in the portfolio? We're looking for scale. We want to play in a space where we believe there's less competition. So equity check of between 500 and a billion and a half. So let's call it 10 to 15 companies at the end. And again, the holy grail is really that once we have this portfolio of seven, eight, nine, ten companies that it generates enough cash flow to let us continue our strategy of buying one to three company a year. And maybe we'll buy bigger company in 10 years or 15 years. That's going to be for the next guy to decide. But really, the goal is to have a relatively concentrated portfolio, not concentrated by private equity measure, because that's probably what they also aim at, 12 to 15 companies. It's going to be diversified in terms of sector. If you look at the traditional private equity sector, that's where we're going to play. Industrial, FIG, healthcare, technology, business services, and uh, consumer goods, with probably a skew on technology and healthcare, because historically those are the sector that have provided the best returns. And certainly you can think of technology as being one of the key in the future. So how have you thought about it from your perspective? Because I hate to tell you, but I don't know that you and I have permanent lives. So a lot of times people invest in a fund and they try to think about how motivated are the principles, how long are they going to be around. But clearly this pool can be around for a lot longer than you will be. I think one of the things I've always done while building team is to ensure proper succession. And one of the things I'm really proud is that every time I moved up, I was able to promote somebody internally. And even when I left, CPP at someone that was there. So so succession has been the big focus of mine. And if you look at how the team is built right now, there's a layer of us more senior people that are in our mid-50s that probably have another, let's call it seven to 10 years before we 
decide to do something else. And the next generation is really in their sort of early to mid-40s. Seven years will be absolutely prepared and ready to take the leadership of the group. I'm really, really happy with the quality of the people that we brought on board. I can't think of a better team that has been assembled and really Those people, when I was selecting them, this layer of people, the next generation, will have more than enough time to prove themselves to our current investors. Every fund has had, especially recently, to go through transition. And they understand that long-term capital means that the capital is going to be for longer than some of the investor. And as long as we keep the communication open and we tell people and there's no surprises, because that's really, you know, if people were to leave quickly, that would have a real negative impact. But I talked to all my partners, certainly Dag, myself, and Calm, we see this as sort of our swan song, and we want to make it a success. Don't forget, all of us left very, very good job to come here and build this. And we all have a very vested interest in making sure that it's a success and that there's a proper transition through time. Great. Well, Andre, let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I'm a pilot. That's really a space where if you want to clear your mind and and focus really on one thing that I just love it. My grandfather was a pilot. My father was a pilot. So I come from a family background where aviation was a big part of what I was when I grew up. So it's a fun hobby. What part of flying most resonates with you? It's the intellectual challenge of doing it. And when I got my license, I I was really, really proud. And my dad looked at me and says, Never forget that every time you get in there, you can kill yourself. (laughs) And so it's really this attention to details and plus the sense of freedom that you have when you fly. What's your biggest pet peeve? I value loyalty and integrity a lot. And dealing with dishonest people is, is really difficult for me. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? Wasting time in meetings. Uh, (laughs) I'd say that the efficiency of a process is really, really important for me. And making sure that we focus on the right thing is really, really important. What reading do you almost never miss? I really like The Economist. I think it's a good way of getting a lot of knowledge in a concentrated way. And I think they're smart writers and I love their covers. So (laughs) that's why I I rarely miss it. Uh, What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? It's interesting. Not really uh, teaching, but my father was a fairly successful entrepreneur, never went to university. He was in the optical business and built a great business. And what I wanted to do was to be successful at something else than he was. So he was a pretty tough guy. So I know that I could have gone and several times he he asked me to join the family business. But one of the things I'm proud and I learned from that experience is that I wanted to do something on my own where I would be successful. And to some extent, I think I was able to accomplish that. Great. Andre, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Before we take off, Please heed this important disclosure from the folks at BlackRock. An investment in LTPC is speculative and includes a high degree of risk, including the risk of a total loss of capital. LTPC and or its underlying investments are liquid and subject to restrictions on transfer. And investors should be aware that they will be required to bear the risks associated with such investments for an indefinite period of time. 
All investors should carefully review the confidential private offering memorandum and governing documents prior to making an investment decision. Any investment decision with respect to LTPC must be based solely on the definitive and final version of the fund's confidential private offering memorandum, governing documents, and subscription agreement. There is no assurance that LTPC will achieve its objectives. This material is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer to sell nor a solicitation to invest in any jurisdiction in which such solicitation is unlawful or to any person to whom it is unlawful. Moreover, it neither constitutes an offer to enter into an investment agreement with the recipient of this document, nor an invitation to respond to it by making an offer to enter into an investment agreement. No recipient is permitted to use this information in any way that would violate U.S. securities laws, rules, or regulations. Any offering to invest in LTPC may be made only through the fund's offering documentation, which fully describes the relevant investment strategies, terms, and risk factors. Any reference herein to any security and or a particular issuer shall not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell, offer to buy, offer to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any such securities issued by such issuer. Historical performance information depicted herein is not indicative of future performance or investment returns, and actual events or conditions may not be consistent with and may differ materially from those depicted. This material contains forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. Such information may include, among other things, projections, forecasts, estimates of yield or returns, and proposed or expected portfolio composition. Moreover, where certain historical performance information of other investment vehicles or composite accounts managed by BlackRock Inc. and or its subsidiaries, together BlackRock, has been included in this material. Such performance information is presented by way of example only. No representation is made that the performance presented will be achieved, or that every assumption made in achieving, calculating, or presenting either the forward-looking information or the historical performance information herein has been considered or stated in preparing this material. Any changes to assumptions that have been made in preparing this material could have a material impact on the investment returns that are presented herein by way of example. This material is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of July 2019 and may change as subsequent conditions vary. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable are not necessarily all-inclusive and are not guaranteed as to accuracy. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. There can be no assurance that any investment can be made in any particular company or portfolio of companies. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. This document contains general information only and is not intended to represent general or specific investment advice. The information does not take into account your financial circumstances. An assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate for you having regard to your objectives, financial situation, and needs. This material is highly confidential and is not to be reproduced or distributed to persons other than the recipient. Issued in the United States by BlackRock Investments, LLC, a member of FINRA. In Canada, for permitted clients only. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock, Inc. All other trademarks are the property of their respective owners. Copyright 2019, BlackRock, Inc. All rights reserved. Music